Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to part one of our three-part series, Living with Triple Negative Breast Cancer. And today's program is titled Advances in the Treatment of Triple Negative Breast Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care, as well as many other breast cancer organizations and other organizations that are helping to promote this program today. Um, and um, we have on the program today over 519 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Bangladesh, Canada, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world, and it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us on this program. Today's program is supported by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. And I also want to thank them for their support of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation helpline and for many other services that um, we are able to provide through the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and for their focus on this particular on, on Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, on, on Triple Negative Breast Cancer. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Payal Shah. Dr. Shah is Assistant Professor, Abramson Cancer Center, University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Shah is going to be um, addressing overview of triple negative breast cancer, current standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Shah. Hi, everyone. As Dr. Mesner said, my name is Pyle Shaw, and I am a medical oncologist at the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and my focus is on breast cancer. So it's my pleasure today to talk to you um, about some triple negative breast cancer basics as well as a little bit more about um, emerging approaches. So the, I'll start out by talking about what is triple negative breast cancer? What does that really mean? Well, there are multiple different kinds of breast cancer, and you may have heard about some breast cancers that use hormones such as estrogen and progesterone to grow, and other breast cancers that rely on a protein called HER2, H-E-R2. And triple negative breast cancers actually do not rely on the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or the HER2 protein in order to grow. So that's what's really meant by them being triple negative. And about 15 to 20% of breast cancers fall into this category. And because we, they don't rely on the hormones or the HER2 protein to grow, the treatments that we give for triple negative breast cancer don't target the hormones or the HER2 protein either. And currently chemotherapy is an important part of treatment for these cancers. So moving on to what our standard of care treatment is, in terms of early stage cancer, so consider stages one, two, and three. These are patients, I'm sorry, these are stages of cancer that we aim to cure for our patients. And the treatment, in addition to involving surgery and sometimes radiation, in terms of the medical treatment, as I said before, we do rely on chemotherapy. In some cases, we give chemotherapy before surgery, and this is what we call neoadjuvant. Um, and in other cases, we give the chemotherapy after surgery, and that's what's called adjuvant. And either approach, giving the chemotherapy before surgery or after surgery, are okay. Um, they're just given um, in different ways in different situations. For example, if we're interested in shrinking the patient's tumor so that it can then come out more easily, or if we want to try to shrink the patient's tumor to allow them to have a lumpectomy rather than a mastectomy, those are situations in which we tend to give the chemotherapy up front or before surgery. Um, and in many other cases, we give it after surgery. So... <clears throat> There are various regimens of chemotherapy that we use, but probably the most common regimen that's used to treat triple negative breast cancer involves three different chemotherapy drugs called adriamycin, 
cytoxan, and taxol, and they are given in a sequential fashion, the A and the C first, followed by the taxol. But there are other regimens as well that we use that may be just as appropriate um, in various clinical situations. So moving on to some, thing, some updates, in terms of the cases in which we give chemotherapy before triple negative breast cancer, there were two recent studies that showed that adding a fourth chemotherapy drug called carboplatin to that paclitaxel or taxol chemotherapy helps to um, improve our rates of something called pathologic complete response. What that means is that when we give the chemotherapy before surgery, our whole goal is that at the time of surgery, we see that a lot of the cancer, ideally all of the cancer, has actually been killed. And when we see that there's no actual living cancer left at the time of surgery, that's something that's called a pathologic complete response. And so a couple of um, relatively recent studies show that we're more able, more successful in getting to that pathologic complete response if we add in a chemotherapy drug called carboplatin to the chemotherapy that patients get before their surgery. Now, this is not something that we do for everyone because the carboplatin does have important side effects, and so we really assess it on an individual and case-by-case -case basis to see if the side effects of the carboplatin are, um, are, are worth uh, the potential benefit to the patient. Another important advance in the situation in which chemotherapy is given before surgery involves a medication called capecitabine or Zolota. This is an oral chemotherapy pill, and one recent study published in one of our biggest journals showed that when patients have chemotherapy first, then have surgery, but there is cancer, living cancer left at the time of surgery, giving this medication, Zolota, um, can actually help improve patient outcomes. So that was a very exciting um, update. And then in terms of research directions, uh, there was recently presented a study that showed that adding an immunotherapy drug called pembrolizumab or Kytruda to chemotherapy before surgery looks promising. And this was reported as part of a clinical trial called iSPY2, and it's a clinical trial that is still ongoing. So currently, immunotherapy in triple negative breast cancer is for the most, most, most part um, still investigational, but is certainly a promising direction that we plan on, that we are all exploring further. In terms of stage four triple negative breast cancer, this is breast cancer that's gone outside of the breast. Um, clinical trials um, for all stages of breast cancer, but certainly for stage four breast cancer, really cannot be overemphasized. Um, we really do encourage all of our patients to consider clinical trials both so that the patients can get um, cutting-edge treatments, so that everybody can learn more about how to best take care of patients. And the other thought that we have is that the standard therapies are always there, whereas trials are dynamic. They open and they close. There are slots that open and then fill up, and we never want to miss an opportunity for a patient to participate on an, on an appropriate clinical trial. So for stage four triple negative breast cancer, while we certainly do rely on chemotherapy, um, we really, really rely heavily on clinical trials as well. So <clears throat> um, that is essentially um, an overview of triple negative breast cancer along with our standard of care and our, um, our emerging and investigational directions. And I'd be happy to, at the time of Q&A, take any questions. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shah. That was outstanding and very informative for everybody, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So everybody think of your questions because Dr. Shah will be on during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Lisa Newman. Uh, Dr. Dr. Newman is Director of the Breast Oncology Program for the Multi Hospital Henry Ford Health System. Um, she's founding medical director for the HFHS International Center for the Study of Breast Cancer Subtypes. And Dr. Newman has done a great deal of work in the field of triple negative breast cancer, and she's going to be talking, and she is a surgeon, she is a breast cancer surgeon, and she'll be talking about the role of surgery, follow-up care plan, and clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Newman. 
Hello, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's an absolute honor to be able to participate in this teleconference. So I will be spending the next few minutes talking about surgery for triple negative breast cancer, and I'll also make some comments about uh, clinical trial options in triple negative breast cancer. But I'll start with and focus on uh, surgical planning. Now, the principles of surgical planning for triple negative breast cancer are actually pretty much the same as those principles that we adhere to when we are planning surgery for non-triple negative breast cancer. In planning the surgery for the breast itself, it's important to address and to make sure that you've removed the actual primary tumor lump itself, the abnormality in the breast that led to the biopsy and the diagnosis of the triple negative breast cancer, but it's also important to address the fact that in at least a half of patients with disease, there will be microscopic amounts of cancer hiding in otherwise normal appearing breast tissue. And this is the reason why the entire breast has to be treated somehow, as well as focusing on the primary tumor. When we perform a mastectomy for breast cancer, we're taking care of both of those two principles in one fell swoop. Many patients will, however, be candidates for breast-conserving or breast-saving surgical management, which involves a lumpectomy to remove the primary tumorous lump in the breast, and then a lumpectomy if it's successful, meaning that you've removed the cancerous growth with normal margins. You can't see any cancer cells at the surfaces of the lumpectomy specimen, and if you've cleared all of the abnormalities that appear on the patient's baseline mammogram, we then rely upon radiation treatments to the breast to kill those microscopic amounts of cancer hiding in the normal appearing breast tissue that was left behind. Now, survival for the patients who undergo mastectomy surgery compared to lumpectomy and radiation is exactly the same. And survival for these two categories of surgically management patient, managed patients is the same because of the fact that the life-threatening aspect of breast cancer, including triple negative breast cancers, tends to be driven by the metastatic risk of the cancer, the risk of the cancer hiding in and ultimately damaging other critical organs of the body, such as the liver, lungs, bones, and such. Now, because triple negative breast cancers in general tend to be biologically more aggressive compared to non-triple negative breast cancers, we do tend to be relatively more aggressive in recommending medical treatments, those treatments that you heard about from Dr. Shaw, in trying to get control of and eradicate the microscopic cancer cells hiding in other organs. Now, this is where treatments like chemotherapy will come into the picture, and since most chemotherapy is given as infusions through intravenous lines, they are very successful at uh, getting into other organs and then sterilizing or killing the microscopic disease hiding in other organs. And so while chemotherapy is not necessarily pleasant to deal with, it is truly life-saving for many of our breast cancer patients, and it can be especially important in the setting of triple-negative breast cancer. Now, we look at the type of the cancer in deciding who needs chemotherapy. We also look at the size of the cancer. It's also critical to look at the lymph nodes. We don't want to use chemotherapy in every single breast cancer patient, so we do rely upon these clues related to the microscopic pattern of the cancer, the uh, pattern being triple negative versus non-triple negative cancer. And it's also important to look at the lymph nodes because the lymph nodes give you basically a reflection of what might be going on in other organs of the body. If you see cancer cells hiding in the lymph nodes or the glands of the underarm in a breast cancer patient, that's a pretty powerful clue or red flag that the woman might also have microscopic cancer cells hiding in other organs and microscopic cancer cells that would benefit from the delivery of chemotherapy. So checking the lymph nodes of the underarm area is going to be very important for nearly all breast cancer patients. The lymph node information will not only help you to decide on chemotherapy planning, but it can also be important in planning on the extent of radiation treatments that are necessary. So as we mentioned, following a lumpectomy, radiation is pretty much always recommended to the breast to kill the microscopic cancer cells hiding in other parts of the breast after the lumpectomy, 
we usually don't need to give radiation after a mastectomy, but there are some women who will be at higher risk for having the cancer cells grow back on the chest wall, which refers to the skin of the mastectomy flaps and in areas beyond the surgical fields, and to lower that risk of the cancer growing back on the chest wall after the mastectomy, we do deliver radiation after the mastectomy. One of the most powerful clues regarding which mastectomy patients do require radiation is related to the lymph node staging surgery. In women who are found to have multiple lymph nodes with cancer in them, we pretty routinely will recommend radiation after that mastectomy. But again, survival for the mastectomy patients compared to the breast-conserving surgical patients is the same and tends to be driven by the risk of distant organ disease or distant organ metastatic uh, uh, spread. For those women who choose mastectomy surgery or for women who need to have mastectomy because of the pattern of their cancer, we pretty much always try to make sure that those women meet with the plastic surgeons to evaluate their breast reconstruction options. A lot of our breast reconstruction can be done at the same time as the mastectomy, which is what we call immediate breast reconstruction. But the door is never closed to reconstruction. Many women will opt to complete all of their cancer treatment, which might include a mastectomy, and then return to the operating room months or years later to undergo the reconstruction in what we call a delayed fashion. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, triple negative breast cancers do in general tend to be more biologically aggressive tumors compared to non-triple negative breast cancers, but that certainly does not mean that they are all destined to uh, metastasize and be life-threatening. Many triple negative breast cancer patients will be very, very effectively and successfully treated. So the treatment is absolutely worthwhile, and the treatment options are improving all the time. It's also important for patients to understand that even though we worry about the biologic aggressiveness of triple negative breast cancer, this does not mean that triple negative breast cancer patients automatically need to have more extensive or more aggressive surgery. And triple negative breast cancer patients do not routinely need to be recommended to undergo mastectomy surgery, nor do they necessarily need to undergo more extensive lymph node or axillary surgery. For many triple negative breast cancer patients, the amount of surgery to the lymph nodes can be limited to a procedure that we call sentinel lymph node biopsy, where we focus on removing just the most important lymph nodes that are responsible for draining that breast and therefore that breast cancer. There are some women, however, who have bulkier cancerous lymph nodes in the underarm, and that would be the scenario where we would have to do a bigger operation called an axillary lymph node dissection, where we basically clear out the entire fat pad of the underarm. We try to avoid this whenever feasible because it is the more extensive lymph node surgery, the axillary lymph node dissection, that can potentially put patients at risk for a problem called lymphedema, where they can develop swelling in the arm on that side. However, if we catch a breast cancer early, regardless of whether it's a triple negative breast cancer or a non-triple negative breast cancer, we can avoid that complete axillary lymph node dissection by doing the smaller operation called the sentinel lymph node biopsy. Now, it is also important to remember that not all triple negative breast cancers are the same. There are some subsets or subtypes of triple negative breast cancers that are more indolent or less aggressive than others. So it is important for the patient to understand her exact biopsy clearly and review that with her management staff so that she understands the pattern of disease that she has and then understands her treatment options. Now, as you heard from Dr. Shaw, many patients with triple negative breast cancer will indeed require chemotherapy to manage the microscopic disease in other organs, what we call the micrometastatic disease. And triple negative breast cancers do indeed tend to be fairly chemosensitive, and this is why we are often aggressive about recommending that triple negative breast cancer patients consider receiving chemotherapy prior to having their surgery. Preoperative chemotherapy is not appropriate for every patient. The first step will be to make sure that the patient does have disease that is very clearly going to need chemotherapy in any circumstance, and then decide whether the chemotherapy prior to the surgery is appropriate or not. Some of the advantages to receiving chemotherapy prior to the surgery are as follows. 
For one, it does give you an opportunity to monitor the effectiveness of the chemotherapy. And if you see the tumorous lump in the breast shrinking down while the chemotherapy is being delivered, you can be pretty sure that you have an effective chemotherapy for that patient's pattern of disease. Also, as Dr. Shaw mentioned, if you are successful in shrinking down that tumor with the chemotherapy, then you can make the patient a better candidate for lumpectomy surgery. And if you're able to shrink down any disease hiding in the underarm, the axillary lymph nodes, you will make the patient a better candidate for less extensive surgery to the lymph nodes. Also, for many patients receiving chemotherapy prior to their surgery, it simply gives them more time to process their thoughts and feelings and preferences regarding the extent of surgery that they prefer for their breast and to make a decision regarding the breast-conserving surgery versus the mastectomy surgery. Patients will also have time to undergo genetic counseling during uh, preoperative chemotherapy. Triple negative breast cancer is a marker of a woman that's more likely to have a genetic uh, predisposition for breast cancer, and that information might help them to decide their preferences regarding breast-conserving surgery versus mastectomy surgery, because women that have hereditary or genetic predisposition for breast cancer are at an increased risk for getting a completely new cancer at some point in the future, either following breast-saving surgery or in the opposite breast. And so some of these women will choose to have a double mastectomy even. But survival, again, I have to emphasize, tends to be related to the aggressiveness of the very first cancer that shows up. And so mastectomy surgery and double mastectomy surgery might be a patient's preference because she wants to reduce her chances of developing, diagnosing a completely new breast cancer. But no breast cancer patient should believe that having a double mastectomy is going to give her a survival advantage. And a double mastectomy is not even a guarantee against future breast cancer development. Patients can have microscopic amounts of breast tissue hiding in the skin of the mastectomy flaps or in the underarm. And so even after a mastectomy, it is possible for the original cancer to grow back in the original cancerous breast, or they could potentially get a completely new cancer on the other side. But it is an option for those women who feel that uh, it, it's something that they are interested in for maximal risk reduction. And then in closing, I do want to comment on the importance of clinical trial participation. We are identifying other novel but promising agents in treating the microscopic and metastatic risk of triple negative breast cancer. And so I strongly encourage any triple negative breast cancer patients to uh, consider any clinical trials for which they're eligible. There are many uh, clinical research opportunities for patients that don't necessarily uh, require a commitment to participating in a clinical trial where the treatments are affected. Some clinical research opportunities simply involve the patient consenting to allow their leftover tissue from surgery or from biopsy procedures to be utilized in the research setting. And this can be important in uh, trying to identify some of the other markers of hereditary predisposition for breast cancer and triple negative breast cancer. We also rely upon these uh, biorepository programs to evaluate some of the disparities in breast cancer that we've identified, such as the higher risk that African-American women face in developing triple negative breast cancer. And so I'll close there, uh, but I do thank everybody for their time and attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Newman. That was really extraordinary and a wonderful presentation. And I, I hope that people really heard that presentation very clearly and um, it was very clearly presented. And I, I do want to remind all of you that the program is happening in real time, but that also if you wish to listen to these programs again, they are up on our website within two days or on telephone replay, and, and that's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So if there's something that you heard but wanted to hear it again, um, or one of, uh, one of a colleague, a friend, or family member, or physician to hear it, you definitely can actually access it quite simply and um, have it always at your fingertips. And our next speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine, Director Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. And Dr. Shapira is going to be addressing communicating with your healthcare team, key questions to ask, 
managing treatment side effects and pain, including neuropathy, and quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Shapira. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's such a, a privilege to be with you on this call today, and I am learning so much from my colleagues already. So let me start by just uh, reflecting on the fact that communication is really a two-way street, and it's really important for every one of you, everybody who is living with this disease and facing decisions about treatment uh, at probably several times, to really try to think of communication as a two-way street, communication with your surgeon, with your radiation oncologist, with your medical oncologist, with other members of your healthcare team. So think about it. Uh, Dr. Newman was just talking about how difficult it is sometimes to make choices about whether to even receive chemotherapy before or after surgery. All of these decisions can be made with feeling supported, um, and that is so much better than feeling that you're alone when making these decisions. So one of the things that each one of you can do is to think about um, what you can do to make communication flow more easily and more comfortably. Um, and one advice I have for everybody going through this is to try to figure out what's important to you. Try to be clear in the way you communicate. Ask questions. Bring somebody with you when you have an important meeting, when you know that treatments will be discussed or information about tests will be given. Try to prioritize your concern. Make a list and rank order your concerns and present this to the team. And don't wait for the last few minutes of the consultation. If you have questions, if you have concerns, try to bring them up as quickly as you can when the meetings start. Identify also various health professionals on your team who can help you. There may be a nurse navigator who helps you coordinate the appointments or helps you understand who to call if you have a complication. Sometimes a patient just doesn't know if she's having pain at the site where she had surgery but now is receiving chemotherapy. Is it something for the oncologist or for the surgeon? Try to find somebody in the team who can be your go-to person. Sometimes that's a nurse or a nurse coordinator, a lay navigator, a nurse navigator, um, somebody in the team. If there's a concern about just getting to the appointment or purchasing medications, perhaps a social worker is the right person to go to. So try to think about your go-to people in the team so that if you have a concern or something comes up between appointments, you can have your needs recognized and met and get some good advice and counsel um, right away. Get organized. Keep notes about the appointments. Keep notes about the information. Find information and ask the healthcare professionals where to find good information. If you're the kind of person who's very curious or you have somebody in your family who's always on the web and looking for information, find sites that provide reliable, expert-vetted information so you can really learn and grow together. And this is very important, and actually being very clear about, about things will help in so many different ways. It's also a very important tool in reporting your symptoms. For instance, we're going to talk a little bit about neuropathy and pain, being clear about that, being clear about where it's happening, how it's happening, how you feel it, and whether or not some of the treatments that are being given to relieve that symptom are working is really important. Another piece that's important in thinking about communication is that we are now uh, really trying to be very clear with patients, more and more so, about the goals of care. Are we providing treatment with the intention of curing the illness? And that's very important when you're undergoing chemotherapy in preparation for surgery that you, you really understand why all of these complex treatments are being given. It's also important for patients who are living with stage 4 disease, which means metastatic disease, to understand why certain treatments are recommended. Typically, these are given with what we call palliative intent, which means to live better and longer, but not focused on cure. And in those situations, it's important also these days to know that having palliative care professionals as part of the treatment team may also lead to better results and certainly will help in managing both communication and the management of symptoms. So when we think about quality of life, the first thing that comes to my mind is to ask, whose life are we talking about? It's your life, and you are the expert in your life. And that's very important to bring that perspective to the team as well. 
So if you are a patient or you are a caregiver and you are having concerns about just getting to the appointments or figuring out how to pay for medications or how to support the family or how to talk to the kids about the illness, bring that up so that somebody on the healthcare team can either help you directly or point you in the right direction. Many of the quality of life concerns that we hear from uh, women living with triple negative breast cancer is that they live with uncertainty. Many live with fear that the cancer will come back. And knowing how to manage that uncertainty and learning some techniques for actually handling those fears can be enormously helpful and also boost quality of life. And as we think about more and more treatments and more drugs involved in the treatment, as Dr. Shah mentioned, we also need to think strategically about how to manage some of the side effects of those uh, medications that we're giving with the intention of getting better results in treating the cancer. So some of these side effects persist, and uh, the pain after surgery often persists for many months, even after the surgery. Pain that may result from having an injury to nerves that we call neuropathy for many of the drugs used to treat the cancer, such as platinum and such as the taxanes that were mentioned earlier, often persists. Neuropathy, which is the damage to these nerves, typically from chemotherapy drugs, is one of the most disabling and also demoralizing problems that arise in cancer survivors. Numbness, tingling, pain in hands and feet typically can really affect how one feels. It can affect how quickly you move, whether or not you can button a shirt, whether or not you can feel things. And uh, these are very, very important um, in, in order to have normal and active lives. So it's important to note that, to, it's important to discuss that if that's happening with the healthcare team. And also in thinking about pain, Pain is so subjective and is reported and felt differently by different people. It's very important also to find a way of having a good and frank conversation about how bad that pain is or what it means with the healthcare professionals. There are all sorts of different uh, treatments for both pain and neuropathy. Some of these can be lifestyle interventions, more exercise, uh, sometimes help with sleep, but sometimes the, we actually do prescribe medications as well. So there are some medications that can be helpful to treat pain and neuropathy. Typically for neuropathy, we think about drugs like gabapentin, pregabalin, duloxetine, but no medication is perfect. So it's important to have a dialogue with the healthcare team and to figure out if the medication is helping and also if the medication is causing side effects that may also be unpleasant and need to be treated. So I think I'm going to stop there, and I'll be very happy to take questions uh, in the Q&A. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to participate today. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shatira. That was really outstanding and wonderful. And there will be questions for you during the q and I, I know they're coming in. And our next speaker is um, Ms. Haley Dinnerman. Ms. Dinnerman is a lawyer, and she is a co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And Ms. Dinnerman is going to address um, uh, programs of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and its, its really purpose. And um, it's, it's an amazing organization. And I'm going to turn this program now over to Ms. Dinnerman. Thank you so much for the introduction, Dr. Messner. Um, I want to take a moment to thank our partners at Cancer Care and my fellow presenters for the excellent overview and updates on TNBC. Truly, those were um, outstanding presentations. Uh, today's webinar and teleconference is one of many programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All of our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients to survivors to caregivers and loved ones. Um, there's something really for everyone. Uh, today, I'd like to take a, a moment to highlight a few of our programmatic offerings, and I sincerely hope that you'll take advantage of them as you navigate from diagnosis through treatment and finally to survivorship. First, we have numerous educational brochures and fact sheets that are available in print or also as free downloads from our website. Our popular Understanding TNBC brochure and our treatment guide for patients and their families were developed with input from members of our TNBC community. 
um, as well as from esteemed medical experts in the area of triple negative breast cancer. Uh, these brochures, as well as all of our other educational materials, have special sections addressing issues of particular interest to certain members of our TNBC community, including African-American and Latina women, those with BRCA mutations, those with early stage diagnoses, and also those with metastatic disease, of course. Uh, we work hard to make sure that every member of our TNBC community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials, so I hope you'll use them to your benefit. Um, our website, tnbcfoundation.org, also offers a TNBC-specific clinical trials matching service, um, a constantly updated TNBC news section, and a favorite of our community is uh, our online discussion forums. The forums allow you to connect with women who are living with triple negative breast cancer really at any time of the day or night. Our community, um, including thousands of women, from those who are newly diagnosed to many long-term survivors, use these forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and anything else related to TNBC. But most importantly, these discussion forums offer consistent support to our community. So if you aren't currently registered for the forums, you should consider joining them. You can even join anonymously, um, and I, I honestly cannot stress enough how helpful they've been to so many women. Of course, if you, would feel, if you feel that you'd benefit more from in-person meetings, I hope you'll consider joining us for our next fall conference weekend. The TNBC Foundation partners with Living Beyond Breast Cancer every year to provide you with a, spe a specific triple negative program. We recently returned from our latest conference weekend in Memphis, which many of you attended. It was you know, a wonderful weekend, which included both um, important educational offerings and opportunities to socialize with our incredible TNBC community. Our next conference won't take place until next fall, but it's never too late to start planning. So if you're interested, please look out for information about the program um, on our Facebook page and, and on our website. In the meantime, I hope you'll join us as we begin planning um, our programming for our National TNBC Day campaign, beginning on March 3rd and lasting throughout the month of March. We'll once again roll out our campaign to increase awareness of triple negative breast cancer, to provide our community with opportunities for education and support, um, and to support the fundraising efforts um, for TNBC research. Many of you on this call have been supporting the this TNBC Foundation-led effort for years planning and executing wonderful events and email campaigns every March. I want to thank you for helping us spread the word, and I want to announce that just like in past years, I'm so proud that 100% of the funds raised by members of our TNBC community um, during this campaign will go to support TNBC-specific research projects. So um, I'm going to end by saying that, you know, it, it, honestly, it goes without saying that TNBC-specific medical research is extremely important to our foundation. Uh, we not only support cutting-edge research at leading medical institutions, but we work hard to inform you um, about any new developments in this area. We have expert scientific bloggers at major medical conferences, including at ASCO, AACR, and SABCS, and they work hard to provide our community with up-to-the-minute updates on new and emerging research and treatment options. So if you're interested in receiving these updates, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're going to be blogging all next week from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, so please be on the lookout for updates. Um, I hope that we connect with you all soon, whether on social media, by phone, online, at tnbcfoundation.org, or live at one of the many TNBC events that are going to be coming this March. So once again, thank you for joining us, and I'll now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Newman. That was really wonderful, and um, it's just a wonderful resource for everybody. And I do want to say a bit um, about the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation helpline. That number is one 888 TNBC or 8622, and you'll be getting information further about that line. You'll be, with your evaluation, you'll be getting all the resources we mentioned during the call. Um, however, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation does offer um, a grant, um, and so you can apply for financial assistance uh, through the helpline if you're needing some help with either transportation or home care or child care. And also, we do have actively right now a triple negative online support group that's recruiting. So you, if you're interested in joining an online support group, which is really an amazing group because it is 24 hours a day. It's professionally facilitated by an oncology social worker. 
and it's a wonderful way to bring your concerns. And again, people from both the United States and all over the world can participate because it is not on, it's, it's kind of asynchronous time, so it's any time you post, and uh, oncology social workers checking things at least once or twice a day so that there is that professional uh, follow-up to your uh, questions and, and comments during the, the online support group. People find it very, very helpful. We also do offer counseling services to people, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers on the telephone, and to even get some help and support um, around just coping with triple negative breast cancer. So it's a wonderful resource to keep. Keep that number handy and use it. Many of you are already using it, but if you haven't been familiar with it, just a wonderful resource for all of you. And now we do have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. And I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, I will then let you know how we can get your questions answered. Um, so I'm going to have Crystal first explain to you how to queue up for questions. And okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that's star one to ask a question. And we have um, some online questions, actually, so um, um, I will uh, we'll take those, and then if we do get some telephone questions, we'll get to those as well. So um, the first online question I'm going to uh, give to Dr. Um, Shaw. Um, and the question is, is the medication Zolota helpful in stage four metastatic breast cancer? If so, should it be paired with another chemotherapy or is it used by itself? Does it cross the blood-brain barrier and is it very effective against brain lesions if it does? So if you could address that question in a general way, um, Dr. Shah, and then of course we advise um, our, our um, the person who's posed the question to go back to the treating healthcare team with the specifics about their situation. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for that question. And yes, <clears throat> the answer is most certainly Zolota is one of the chemotherapy drugs that we do use when patients have metastatic or stage 4 disease. And it it has been shown to be effective, and it certainly um, there is data that it can uh, have activity inside the brain as well and cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, and for many patients, it um, it is well tolerated in terms of side effects as well. The side effects that we think about with Zolota can be some redness and um, sometimes blistering of the hands and the feet and sometimes mouth sores or diarrhea, but um, we can usually manage those by lowering the dose. But yes, um, you know, for many patients, uh, Zolota is one of the chemotherapy drugs that can certainly be used in stage four cancer. Um, Although every, you know, what I will say is that every patient um, responds to every drug a little bit differently, and so definitely for um, any any individual patient care, I would have you chat with your doctor. Thank you very much. And um, and um, the next question is for Dr. Shapira. Um, so the question is, I'm interested in finding out about care after chemotherapy and mastectomy in the first year of diagnosis. What do I do next in terms of just um, next steps? So if you could um, just talk a little bit, Dr. Um, Shapir, about just next steps in dealing with the healthcare team. That would be probably very helpful here. So this is a great question, and we can talk for hours about this. This is a great <laughs> introduction uh, to the need to have a good plan for what we now call survivorship. In the past, we used to just think of this as life after cancer, and now we've sort of put some brackets on this period, and we call it survivorship because it acknowledges that there are some specific changes that you can't just snap back to um, life pre-cancer, that life post-cancer and new normal um, are challenging as well. So the answer to your question is really to think about how you think you are different now than you were before, what physical symptoms perhaps persists, uh, to have a plan and a strategy that you discuss with your healthcare team for trying to resolve those. Uh, some people are left feeling that they're out of shape or deconditioned, and people have specific pain or adjusting to a new to a prosthesis or to a new body part. Uh, some people feel very well and, and uh, feel that the cancer experience is sort of 
um, help them appreciate things in a new way, but perhaps physically are not exactly the same. So the answer to your question is really to try to think about and maybe strategize with your healthcare team about what things that you think are still not working as well as you'd like to, what uh, concerns you have, what kind of follow-up they suggest for you so you actually have a plan and a roadmap that helps you plan your time so you know what and what if any tests they're going to want to do on you and you are all on the same page. Another important uh, issue to consider is when to go back to your primary care doctor and, uh, and sort of reestablish care and think about um, health issues that are unrelated to the cancer. So all of these things make up what we call the survivorship period, and um, exactly what to focus on depends a little bit on the problems that each one of you may face. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and um, our next question, uh, uh, Crystal, from the telephone. Thank you. Our question comes from Elva A. Your line is open. Yes, um, I was trying to find out about um, uh, uh, triple negative um, breast cancer, which is a stage one. So I was trying to find out some side effects about the CMF I'm getting right now for my chemo. So I'm sorry, could you just repeat the question one more time so I sure to get the yeah, question? I yeah, yeah, I'm getting um, CMF from, from my chemo, stage one breast cancer. Started like um, I did two treatments. So I was trying to find out about the side effects, about the CMS. Okay. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Um, thank you for that question. Dr. Dr. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, Dr. Shaw, did you want to address that? Yes, absolutely. So um, CMF is a chemotherapy regimen that certainly we sometimes use for triple negative breast cancer. And congratulations on being done, it sounds like, with two of your treatments already. Um, usually patients tend to do re, um, pretty well in terms of CMF, although there is some, you know, everybody is a little bit different, but sometimes patients who are receiving CMF can be a little bit tired, a little bit of hair thinning, um, sometimes mouth sores and, and diarrhea, um, but usually that, those are, that's the extent of the side effects that we tend to see with CMF. Um, so it tends to not have, fortunately, some of the neuropathy of some of the other regimens, and also it doesn't affect um, the heart uh, like some of the other chemotherapy regimens, too. Does that answer your question? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And um, so um, and we have another telephone question, I believe, Crystal, is that correct? Yes, our next question comes from Andrea G. Your line is open. Yes, I have triple negative fourth, uh, and I'm in the fourth stage. It's metastasized in my lungs. I'd like to know what are the clinical trials available to me? Yes, shall I go ahead and... Or? Yes, please. Yes, yes. Sure. So um, that is a great question and actually allows us to um, clarify a couple of points about clinical trials that can be uh, not entirely clear from the outset. So the first point is that there are many, many clinical trials and different institutions have different clinical trials open. And some, while, you know, some clinical trials are only open at one place, other clinical trials are open at many, many places. And so answering the question of um, what clinical trials might be available to you kind of requires probably a discussion with a provider near where you are um, so that they can actually point you to what's open at a, at a center near you. Um, nationally, though, in general, the clinical trials that are ongoing for triple negative breast cancer, many of them involve novel, like newer targeted agents, um, sometimes in combination with chemotherapy, and many of them include various immunotherapies also alone and sometimes in combination with chemotherapy. Um, and it's just a matter of what happens to be open near you and what 
um, you happen to be eligible for. And eligibility of clinical trials is also a concept that's not entirely um, obvious to people when they first get started. But what that basically means is that uh, for any patient to participate in a clinical trial, the patient the, they have to kind of be a good fit for the clinical trial as much as the clinical trial is, uh, um, and of course the priority is that the clinical trial makes sense for them. So clinical trials sometimes have pretty strict rules um, about how many prior treatments you could have gotten, how um, extensive the cancer is, um, and how well you're feeling at the time. And so um, I would say the clinical trials that are available to you probably involve chemotherapy and immunotherapy and targeted therapies, but the um, specifics depend on things like where you live and what centers you are um, able to travel to or be seen at. So uh, my recommendation in general for people who are really interested in clinical trials is to um, make sure that they are seen at least once or at least for a second opinion at a center that offers a lot of um, clinical trials so that they'll probably be able to direct you to what might best suit you and your personal values and your preferences and your needs. Awesome. Thank you. And, and uh, Dr. Shapiro, do you want to add to that? Oh, I think that was a, a, a wonderful um, answer. I think that, that it, it actually addresses the fact that the person and trial have to be a good match. So uh, taking the time to consider the options is important. A lot also depends on what treatments you have already received uh, because the whole idea of a clinical trial is to come up with something that is different from what you've already received. So making sure that you find the right center, that you have uh, time to, to, to expand the way you're thinking about the clinical trial is important. And always I think it's important to frame the conversation about a trial um, as part of the conversation also about what the standard options for treatment are. There may be some very good standard uh, treatments available to you right now, and this may not be the best time to participate in a trial, but keeping that conversation going and always considering about clinic, the fact that clinical trials sort of create new options for you um, is important. And then, of course, it's a matter of balancing what you think you might gain personally and also what you may be risking by participating in a treatment protocol about which little is known, which is often the case when we're looking at very new treatments. Thank you. And we will be sending all of you information about how to get information about clinical trials. You do hear about the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation as a resource, and of course the National Cancer Institute also has information for you as well, as well as your treating healthcare team. We have another question from one of our online participants, and this is for Dr. Shaw. How severely does the four chemo protocols, AC, Taxol, Carboplatinum, et cetera, affect the heart, and when can symptoms be expected, may be expected? So if you could address this in a general way so that our call then can go back to the healthcare team with probably more informed questions, that would be very helpful. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, can you uh, repeat, was the fourth drug, was it Carboplatin or was it Herceptin? Carboplatinum. So it was okay. um, AC, yep. uh, Taxol, Carboplatinum. So that is a really excellent question. And actually, the cardiac, the heart-related side effects of some of the drugs that we're giving in cancer therapy are becoming something that we're more and more aware of and that we're more and more um, uh, interested in researching how best to identify and treat. So it's certainly an important question that you bring up. And the answer is that the A drug of that of that four drug combination that you mentioned, the A drug is the one that we um, think about when we think about having potential effects on the heart. And the overall risk is, is something like two, uh, 1% to 2%. So about a very small number of uh, patients who receive that drug that starts with A, the adriamycin, actually end up having any effects on the heart. Um, and 
a couple of things that we do to help uh, look into this from the outset are, one, is pick the right patient to receive that drug. So if a patient has a lot of um, heart issues to start with, then that might be a reason that instead of picking ACT or ACT plus carboplatin, we may pick another regimen instead. Um, in addition, before giving that adriamycin drug, we always get an echocardiogram or some sort of assessment of how the patient's heart is at baseline to make sure that it's in good enough shape to receive the drug in the first place. And then also in certain patients, in selected patients, we may end up getting a follow-up echocardiogram sometime between 6 and 12 months afterwards. And the question about when the heart side effects appear, if they're going to appear, is a good one, also one that we're learning more and more about. Um, and probably, you know, in some patients can happen as early as um, several months to a year afterwards, but the risk there is some degree of risk, though smaller, in the years afterwards. So um, I hope that answers your question. Well, it's a wonderful question. So, Dr. Shapiro, do you wish to add to this? Because this also involves survivorship as well. Yes, I think the, uh, the answer is great and uh, just also reminds us that some of, the, some of the late effects of chemotherapy drugs may require some monitoring even after the treatment is done. So for patients who may be older, who may have other reasons to think that they have a predisposition to some heart disease, then if they have received drugs that could also affect the heart, they, they, they may require some more specialized follow-up. So for everybody, I think paying attention to the late effects and the consequences of receiving treatment is, is important, particularly for those who are in this extended survivorship phase. Yeah. And I can actually just one more thing that I, I didn't mention earlier is that we do, um, for certain patients, we do also work with our colleagues in cardiology and primary care or internal medicine doctors to sometimes tweak if patients are on blood pressure pills. Um, we sometimes tweak the medications so that we're including medications that have a protective effect on the heart. For example, beta blockers or um, a category of drugs called ACE inhibitors, um, just to make sure that we are upfront protecting the heart as much as possible. Thank you. Excellent. These are outstanding participants and questions. And um, are going to be our last late breaking question for Dr. Shah. Um, how come and well, why can a patient go from being ERPR positive and HER2 negative to triple negative? Can yeah. you address this in a general way? And then our caller, of course, can go back to the treating healthcare team. But Yeah. So that is a great question and certainly something that we do see from time to time. And um, what we see sometimes is that when we do a patient's initial either breast surgery or biopsy, their tumor may look like it in part grows from the hormones and then at the time of either a recurrence or a repeat biopsy somewhere else, it seems like the ER and the PR are now 0%. And, you know, tumors are actually constantly dividing and making more of themselves. And as they do that, as the cells kind of um, multiply, they actually change. They go undergo mutations as well. And so, um, over time, tumors can change, um, and that's part of the reason why that the repeat biopsy at the time, let's say that a patient was stage two and years later there's a recurrence of the cancer, that's part of the reason why doing a repeat biopsy when the cancer comes back is important to make sure that we know exactly what we're dealing with so that we can help treat it the best possible way. Um, and the other side is that, you know, sometimes, yes, tumors do change over time, but the other thing is that there can be um, differences in the tumor from the outset. That is that if you have, you know, if the tumor is a pie, um, there, there can be one area of the pie that is actually a little bit different than the other area of the pie, even though it's all in the same pie, if that makes sense. And that's a concept that we call heterogeneity, meaning that it's not all the same in there. So there may be some um, tumor cells or areas that are um, have certain features and other areas in that same tumor that are a little bit different. So, um, and then the third thing that I'll mention is that even though um, sometimes cancers are hormone receptor positive at the outset, 
over time, the tumors can kind of learn um, how to grow despite anti-estrogen therapy, and that's a concept called endocrine resistance. Um, and so at that time, we tend to switch away from relying on the anti-hormone treatments and start using some of our other treatments. So um, the, the good thing is, though, that as long as we know what we're dealing with, um, we or knowing what we're dealing with kind of arms us the best to help treat patients in the best possible way for them. And although I said that was the last bike-breaking question, there's one more that I would like us to take, um, and I know it may mean that we stay on a little bit, or just a minute or two longer, but the question is um, from a person who navigates service to women in her country, Bangladesh. question is, is new adjuvant versus adjuvant, which is a better option? So again, Dr. Um, Shah, if you could address these concepts, explain what they are to everyone, and in terms yeah. of... Um, how those decisions are made, that would probably be very helpful, probably for everyone on the call and particularly for our caller who asked that question as well. Yeah, definitely. So, <clears throat> sorry about that. Again, a, an excellent um, question and a really important point. So, I, I think Dr. Shapiro actually had mentioned um, some data showing that um, whether a patient has neoadjuvant therapy, meaning the chemotherapy upfront, or whether a patient has adjuvant therapy, meaning the chemotherapy after surgery, um, the outcomes in terms of overall survival, as well as we know, and based on a big publication, are about are are actually equivalent. So there's no difference in survival based on whether or not the patient a patient gets chemotherapy first or chemotherapy afterwards. And the decision to give chemotherapy first is sometimes made in partnership with the surgeons. So if we, for example, want to um, reduce the bulk of a tumor or shrink a tumor to help uh, achieve a successful surgical resection of it, then that's one reason to give the chemotherapy first. Sometimes there are um, <clears throat> medical reasons that a patient should not go to surgery right away. They have other medical problems that need to be controlled before taking them to surgery, and that may be a reason to do the chemotherapy first. Sometimes a patient really does not want a mastectomy, and if in partnership with the patient's surgeon, we think that maybe shrinking the tumor first will help to get this patient to a smaller surgery, that's a third reason to do chemotherapy first. But in terms of what's better, there's really no um, comparative data that says that a patient's outcome is going to be better if you take one approach versus the second versus another approach. So a lot of it has to do with um, the individual case and um, some sometimes surgical decision-making as well. Excellent. And, and Dr. Shapiro, do you want to comment on just the tailoring of treatment to the person? Do you want to just say something about it since that already? Just a, a word about that. I think uh, Dr. Shaw said it all, that uh, that, okay. there's some, okay. that there may be some very specific tumor-related reasons, and there, sometimes there may be specific reasons that pertain to the person. Sometimes, as also Dr. Newman had mentioned earlier, if somebody's not quite sure exactly what kind of surgery they're going to need, for many reasons, um, starting with chemotherapy may buy them a little bit of time. So lots of different um, uh, topics can influence, or lots of different considerations can influence whether or not getting chemo before or after surgery is actually the best thing for that individual person. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You have been outstanding. I also wish to thank all of our participants today, both those of you who've asked questions and those of you who've been listening um, and may still have questions that we have not gotten to. So um, I do want to be sure to be uh, responsive to, first of all, anyone who has a question that has not yet been answered. So we, um, many of you have asked questions in terms of specifically, this is a program on triple negative breast cancer, and the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation does offer um, a uh, clinical trial. They do have a clinical trial matching service, um, which is on their website. Um, the website is uh, www.tnbcfoundation.org, and that's a wonderful resource for all of you to, um, to seek out, I would say. And also, um, for those of you who have questions just in terms of coping with triple negative breast cancer 
or questions about and all the information about triple negative breast cancer that you wish to access, um, the the, the helpline one eight seven seven eight eight zero eighty six twenty two is a wonderful resource for all of you. Um, and in addition to that, of course, um, you have all the services to access um, from all the services at Cancer Care Office as well, 1-800-813-4673, and you'll be getting all that information from us. Um, and um, I actually just want to thank you for being on this call today. I also do not want to take away from your talking to your healthcare team um, because I know that they are, of course, your your first resource, they're there. They know your situation the best. So we're hoping that you got information today that will truly help you in your discussions with your healthcare team. And if we can help to supplement it as you go forward, please do take advantage of these particular resources, and we'll be sending you other resources um, with your evaluation of the program. And we really do very much appreciate your feedback about the program, your honest feedback. It helps us to make the programs better, so your suggestions, even for topics you'd like us to offer in the future. That's very helpful to us as well. Um, I also want to mention to you that this is a triple negative breast cancer time, so tomorrow we have a program coping with the stresses of caregiving when your loved one has triple negative breast cancer. That will be tomorrow on Thursday, November 30th, and that will be at the same time from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we also have a program on December 20th. Um, that will be um, uh, part three. It will be an update on clinical trials and triple negative breast cancer, which I know is of interest to all of you because many of you have asked questions about uh, clinical trials, so that's coming up and you'll hear more about it. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.